Please turn in your copy of God's Word once again to Matthew's Gospel. A few weeks ago, we spent time in the genealogy of Jesus in the beginning of Matthew, and this last week we expounded uh, verses 18 of chapter 1 to the end of the chapter, with a focus, of course, upon the virgin birth of Christ. I was only able, however, to touch on verse 21, and we're going to focus on verse 21. I love focusing on verse 21, and we're going to focus on verse 21 this morning. But we will pray, and then we will begin reading at verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit poured out by the ascended Christ as we gather for worship. The Word proclaimed, O Father, what soul can it save? What soul can it it point to the only Redeemer apart from the work of the Holy Spirit? And we know, Heavenly Father, that that grace, grace comes only from thy hand. And so we earnestly pray in the name of Christ that the Holy Spirit will be working in our midst, opening our hearts, helping every believer to long to know Christ better and better and more and more, and that we may hate sin and love righteousness that we may be amazed at the incarnation of our Lord. And Father, for those who are here this morning who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we believe that through the foolishness of preaching, God saves lost sinners. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that the word would be taken right to the heart, that someone may plant a seed, another water, but that Thou, O great God, will give the increase. Work in our hearts, Heavenly Father, and as we pray thy blessing that this service will be, will be mightily blessed by the Holy Spirit. We pray that for everywhere that the gospel is truly preached, and we pray that, Father, for our country in such deep need of gospel preaching and of the spread of the truth and reality of the incarnation of our Lord, his obedience to the law, his death upon a cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession, and his coming again. Hear our prayer. We bow in reverence and awe before thee, and we confess again our complete dependence upon thee. In the name of Christ, our risen King. Amen and amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We'll begin reading at verse 18 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. This is the Word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now notice again verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The word of the Lord, please be seated. People of God, as we looked at the text last week and we saw something of the supernatural virginal conception of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came into this world to be our Redeemer, we notice that Jesus did not know the corruption of the fall of Adam that is known to us that pervades our lives in total depravity. In other words, there is no original sin with relation to him, no corruption of nature in our Savior's humanity, and this is necessary if he is to be the Redeemer and Savior of sinners like us lost in sin and corruption. He bears our nature, as someone has said, but not our corruption. The text then dwells on the virgin birth of Christ, and in verse 21, we are told what the name of this virgin-born Savior would be. And so I want you to look with me at the name Jesus this morning, according to verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. First of all, what is the name? Well, you say the name is Jesus, yes, but more deeply, what is the meaning of the name Jesus? And first of all, notice with me that this is a God-given name. No one could give this name to the mediator, the redeemer of God's people, but the Father. Only he could give him his mediatorial name, the peculiar name of the incarnate Son of God, which is Jesus. It is a God-given name. But also, it is a salvific name. That is to say, it has to do completely and utterly with the truth and reality that he is our Savior, It tells us what our Lord came to accomplish. Now, Jesus is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Joshua. And there were two named Joshua in the Old Testament, as you will recall. The captain who led the children of Israel in their settlement in the promised land. And of course, Joshua the high priest, of whom we have preached recently in the book of Zechariah, after their return from the captivity. The prefix Yech means Jehovah because this is who Jesus is. He is Jehovah incarnate, the second person of the Trinity who became man to dwell among us. And let us not forget that Jesus is God who assumed human nature. And all of this assumes the doctrine of the Trinity, the fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. So Christ, like Joshua of old, but greater, is the captain of your salvation. 
And like the high priest of God's people during the return from captivity, Jesus is the high priest of our profession, only greater. And the wonder of it all is that this Redeemer and Savior is given to save his people from our sins. But also, it is an epical name, an epical name. The giving of the names were often associated in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, with epochs in the redemption of the people of God. So, Abram became Abraham, exalted father, was given the name father of a multitude when the covenant of grace was announced that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So here the birth of Jesus is the greatest epical redemptive historical event to this point in redemptive history as we come to this passage in Matthew to be followed by the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord and his pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and his return at the end of the age. Jesus then indicates that he is the turning point of the ages that he is the great and significant one who only could have come and brought about this final stage of redemptive history in which his people are saved from our sins. But also, not only do we see in this passage that this name is a God-given name, that it is a salvific name, that it is an epical name, but also it is a uniquely significant name. And one of the ways in which we see this, the name Jesus, is significant, uniquely significant, is because it is guaranteed by the command of God that this would be his name. God wanted the Son coming into this world to have this name. It is the name given before the birth in Matthew 1 and in Luke 1.31. Gabriel says, you shall call his name Jesus. And then after the birth at the circumcision of Christ in Luke chapter 2, we read, and when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And what's the point of that? Why is this so important? It is important. It is very significant because only God could give the name. Only God could send the mediator. Only God can send the redeemer of God's elect. In other words, it is God's name for his son who would die for our sins. Our devising and stratagems do not set up a mediator. We contribute nothing to our salvation. It is all of grace from first to last. God in counsel determined that the Son would assume human nature and that He would be our sole and complete and all-sufficient Redeemer from our sins. The name Jesus must be given to Him by the Father because only the Father can bring salvation through this Redeemer. God in counsel determined the name of the mediator and determined your salvation by the one named Jesus. Do you understand that you can contribute nothing to your acceptance with God? That we were so lost and undone in our sin and depravity that only God the Father could send His only Son to be our Redeemer from sin. 
And so when the Lord assigned a name in the Old Testament, it was significant, but the Lord indeed communicated something wonderful in naming the incarnate Son, who is Jesus Christ. The name upon which we call. The name upon which we completely depend for our redemption from our sins. The name that we proclaim to all the world as the only Savior of sinners. How wonderful for a lost sinner to find salvation in his name. And I ask you, have you found salvation in the name Jesus? In the name, that is to say, all that he is in his character and his worth and his wonder. Have you found salvation for your sins, for your soul, in Jesus? Well, that's the name. But I also want to see in this passage something of the power of the name. And that's second, the power of the name. Jesus, as we have said, is Greek for Joshua. The name means Jehovah saves. And how significant this is because Jesus is revealed as God in the flesh who is the Savior of sinners. And notice that the text in verse 21 says, He shall save His people from their sins. He does not say He possibly might save His people from their sins. He does not say, well, it's contingent on certain factors whether or not this will happen. He did not say, well, it's conditioned on certain things. No, He shall save His people from their sins. He does not save sinners if they don't stifle it with free will. No, he says nothing of the sort. No, he shall save his people from their sins. As we read in John six thirty nine. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. God the Father loved the people, sent His Son to die for those people, and the Spirit of God will apply the gospel to those people. Jesus will save His people from their sins. And notice that it says, from sins. From sins. What does it mean that Jesus saves His people from their sins? Well, of course, it means two things. It means, first of all, that we are saved from our awful guilt as we stood in the presence of the holy God, altogether righteous. There he, in his holiness, with all of the perfection of his law, must, because he is just, come out against the sinner and must pour out his wrath upon those who are not under the value of the blood of Jesus Christ unless Jesus comes to save that person from his or her sins. Jesus removes our awful guilt. Jesus is the Lord, our righteousness. Through his merit, believers are justified, totally accepted by God in his court of law. My sin was imputed to Christ, and the faith granted to me to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ when I believed his righteousness, his perfect record was imputed to my account. So that as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now this is found throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, especially in the epistles of Paul, and we dwell upon it frequently, and we should. But also, we should dwell upon this point, that not only does he remove our guilt 
but also for Jesus to be my Savior means that he removes the power of sin in my life. Justification is an act. Sanctification is a process. And Jesus is no less the Savior when he sanctifies as when he justifies. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. The process of sanctification is one that makes us progressively holy. And we now put on the new man created in righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, and following tells us. And upon death, our sanctification is completely perfected, thank God. Is this salvation not inexpressibly wonderful? Isn't it inexpressibly wonderful that a lost sinner like me is now completely accepted in the courtroom of God because of the imputed righteousness of Christ? And is it not also wonderful that a sinner like me, totally depraved and completely, completely once under the wrath of Almighty God, that there has been a transition from wrath to grace and now also having regenerated my heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is applying the work of Jesus Christ to my heart day by day by day by day with all of my struggle with temptation and sin. This is truly wonderful. You know, a number of years ago, a lot of years now, I bought a Christmas gift for my wife. That doesn't mean I don't buy her one now, but years ago I bought her a Christmas gift. And it was a, it was a nice hutch, colonial, very simple, and um, she wanted to put her best dishware somewhere, and so I found this hutch. And I sanded it down, I put it out in the garage, and night after night, if I didn't have a meeting after family worship, I would go out and I would sand and sand and work on this, this hutch, and I sanded and stained and, and reached, this, this stain reached into all of the crevices of this hutch, and it made it a new piece. You might say it was a regenerated hutch. And... And the stain on it really made it quite beautiful, but you know what happens when you stain a piece is that it raises the grain. And so I got out the sandpaper again, and I got out the steel wool, and I, I worked on it and worked on it and worked on it so patiently. For hours on end, I used the steel wool to smooth out the grain. Now use your imagination for a moment. Had that hutch been sentient and communicative, It might have said to me as I was sanding away and using the steel wool, you know, that comforts me. Or it might have said to me, that really gives me assurance. Or it might have actually said to me, that hurts. And I would have responded, yes, it hurts. It might hurt now, but I'm preparing you for usefulness. I am making you to be a consistent hutch. And so the Lord applies redemption to our lives. And he applies the steel wool of the word and the sandpaper of hard circumstances to make us beautiful and useful in the service of our king. Now that is promised in the name, not only justification. And you may say to me, Pastor, that's a silly illustration. And I say it surely is, but I'll bet you'll remember it. That's what he's doing in our lives. Christ not only purchased my justification, he purchased the Lord's work in my life to sand and polish and make me to be the man of God that he wants me to be. 
Now here I think I need to add a warning, you see. Because a sinner that comes and says, I want you, Lord, to save me from hell, but I don't want to be holy. I want you to save me from hell, but I have no interest in walking in holiness of life, in obedience to the Word of God. That man remains an unsaved man. The Bible simply does not teach that we can have Christ as our priest, but not also as our prophet and our king. When you receive Christ, you receive the whole Christ. You cannot receive a divided Christ. And so the attitude of this man who may say, I want to be saved from hell, but I do not want holiness of life, simply demonstrates that he is not a regenerate man. That attitude is not true saving faith. Though imperfectly the saved man wants all sin in his life dealt with. And there's, there's a mighty struggle because of my, my innate depravity. But greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And so it says he has come to save me from my sins. And that makes it particular, doesn't it? Because your sins and my sins may differ. We have the same depraved heart. We are born in original sin, but we might see that sin manifested differently among us. My sins, my particular sins, my particular failings, my particular faults. John Murray correctly says, the people of God do not want salvation in sin. The salvation the quickened heart and enlightened conscience demand is one that removes sin and all its consequences. This and nothing less is the salvation Jesus procured. And that's the good news. This is the salvation that he procured. John Calvin put it this way, For the Spirit dispenses a power whereby God's people may gain the upper hand and become victors in the struggle. But sin ceases only to reign. It does not also cease to dwell in them. Not until we reach our heavenly home will that struggle cease. But we have the promise he will save his people from their sins. And as John Owen says, sanctification is the realization of the gospel in our lives. And what the Spirit of God is doing is taking this redeeming work of Jesus Christ and helping us more and more to realize all of the fullness of the gospel in our lives as we struggle with temptation and sin. What a Savior! that he can save his people from their guilt, but also from the reigning power of sin. And eventually, in our heavenly home, there will be no sin whatsoever in any believer's heart. But we must move on. And the third thing we want to see in the text is the people that are saved by the name. If he tells us in this passage... She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What does he mean by his people whom he saves? Well, thank God this salvation is concrete and personal. It always is. He obeyed the law for you, believer. He went to the cross for you, believer. It is concrete and it is personal. It is my sin for which Jesus died. He is my Savior from sin. He was my real substitute on the cross. And there's nothing vague or hypothetical about it. 
I cite John Gill, with whom I am in complete agreement in this comment. Gill said, By his people, whom he is said to save or meant, not all mankind, though they are his by creation and preservation, yet they are not, nor will they all be saved by him spiritually and eternally. Nor also the people of the Jews, for though they were his nation, his kinsmen, and so his own people according to the flesh, yet they were not all saved by him. Many of them died in their sins and in the disbelief of him, the Messiah. But by them are meant all the elect of God, whether Jews or Gentiles, who were given to him by his Father as a peculiar people, and who were made willing in the day of his power upon him to be saved by him in his own way. What is being spoken of here is the sovereignty of God that saves sinners. I make a direct line from that passage to Matthew chapter 11, in which Jesus Christ gives thanks to the Father for the sovereignty of God and salvation. When he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And he had declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This is the sovereignty of God in saving his people from their sins. Flowing from this name, Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, is all of the force and fullness and wonder and power and reality of the biblical reformed doctrine of salvation. The particular nature of the atonement is especially wondrous to dwell upon in view of the fact that he will save his people from our sins. It is wondrous that this Jesus went to the cross Did Christ really satisfy the justice of God against us when he went to his cross? So that the believer owes nothing of the debt that Christ paid, and therefore he cannot be lost? The answer to that question is yes. As the hymn writer wrote, if thou hast my discharge procured and fully in my room, in my stead endured the whole of wrath divine, Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Which, if you miss the poetry, simply means, if Christ paid your debt, it was paid in full, and you owe it no more. And you cannot suffer in hell, for he actually redeemed you from your sins. We preach a free and full salvation, an atonement that really atones, a redemption that really redeems, a salvation that really saves sinners. And so there was a real imputation of our guilt to Christ and a real imputation of his righteousness to the believer in Christ. That is to say, Christ's sacrifice was a genuine, real substitution for his people when he died for us. It's a wonderful thing. Because if the atonement were not particular, if the salvation of God were not effectual, 
there would be no gospel to preach. I would have no gospel to preach if Jesus did not actually die to save his people. If he were not Jesus who saves his people from our sins. A gospel that cannot save is no gospel. Salvation is from first to last the sovereign work of God. Through his atonement, Jesus has accomplished salvation for a multitude which no man can number. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. There's a wonderful story told of Professor John Murray from the early Westminster Theological Seminary who taught systematic theology, who was giving a series of lectures at Tyndall House in Cambridge. One of them was on the covenant of grace, which people found hard going, but he also delivered a lecture on the particular nature of the atonement, that he actually died for his people, actually saved his people when he shed his blood for them on the cross. And after the lecture, which it was said, a child could have followed with its simplicity and clarity. The ministers who were gathered there began to ask their questions and to respond in ways that some minister there said was just sheer carnality. And of course, one of the great questions that is always asked is, if Jesus died for his people in particular, how can you preach the gospel to the world at large? And there are many answers the Bible itself gives to that. But Professor Murray seemed as if his whole being were dilated, and there he was in his dark suit, and he began to pace back and forth. And And uh, they said his eyes burned, but you know, one of his eyes was a glass eye, so that's really remarkable. And so he began to speak to the ministers who were there, and he began to reflect upon when he was a boy and how he had sat under those great free Presbyterian ministers, free Presbyterian Church of Scotland ministers who preached the sovereignty of grace, electing grace, all of the famous and wondrous five points of Calvinism, and yet no ministers under whom he had ever sat preached with greater freedom the gospel of saving grace to sinners as sinners. And God owned their ministries with conversions to Jesus Christ. Oh, people of God, It is because of your minister's commitment to the despised biblical so-called five points of Calvinism that I can preach the efficacy of the name of Jesus and actually believe that when I preach in a cemetery, God's Spirit will raise the dead. Apply the Word of God. Actually believe that when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He has a multitude which no man can number to whom He will apply that gospel because Jesus died for them. It is because we preach the efficacy of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we also can believe in its utter sufficiency for sinners, whoever those sinners may be who need a Redeemer. And that leads us then, fourthly, to the exclusivity of the name. Jesus is the exclusive name. And here I would remind us that the name Jesus is the only name by which sinners can be saved. Especially needing stressing today in our world. We read in Acts chapter 4, 
be it known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught by you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, did you hear those words? Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus will not coexist with some other name that claims to be Savior. The name Jesus will not coexist with some other concept or philosophy or false religion. This one whose name given by God is Jesus, Jehovah saves, who will save his people from their sins, is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And if you are here and you have been trying to to go through some self-salvation, something that you do, something that you contribute, there cannot be one stitch of your own in the righteous garment that Christ imputes to the believer. Only Christ can save. And what we're insisting on in relation to the name is the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It isn't politically correct, but it is what the Bible teaches. It must be preached, and it must be believed, and it must be firmly held. The Heidelberg Catechism in questions 28 and 29, or maybe it's 29 and 30, put it this way. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, a Savior? Answer, because he saveth us and delivereth us from our sins, and likewise because we ought not to seek, neither can find salvation in any other. Question 30, do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior who seek their salvation and welfare of saints, of themselves, or anywhere else? No, they do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only deliverer and Savior, for one of these two things must be true, that either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they, who by a true faith receive this Savior, must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. I implore you, to find all of your righteousness, all of your acceptance with God, all in the merit of Jesus Christ, to find all of your sanctification in him, in his work, in his person. Let us not trust to ourselves or any creature or created thing, but in Christ alone as our all-sufficient Savior. And this brings us once again to realize that only Jesus Christ can be the Savior And that is what Jesus means. Jehovah saves. Thank God that when you and I were lost and dead in trespasses and sins, that God sent his own son, the second person of the Trinity, actually assumed human nature, became a man without ceasing to be God. 
in order that he might be our redeemer from sins. So let me bring this to a conclusion. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You will admit, will you not? That is a wondrous verse, isn't it? That's a wonderful verse in Scripture to which to hold, to which to cling, on which we should meditate at all times, and yes, in this season of the year. How could he accomplish this? He is God that assumed human nature. He could pay the price once for all by the sacrifice of himself. He could purchase us for himself and from our sins. No other could do this. Let me glory in Jesus Christ. Let me glory in the Savior. No other can be the Savior of sinners but Jesus Christ. None other could do it. Do you know the Rossetti line, none other lamb, no other name, none other hope in heaven or earth or sea, none other hiding place from guilt and shame, none beside thee. And that atonement is sufficient for your sins, no matter how great your sins might be. John Owen the Puritan points out that there is a sufficiency of grace for millions of worlds because it flows into it from an infinite bottomless fountain. Fear not, O worm Jacob, I am God, and not man is the bottom of the sinner's consolation. But you say, my guilt, pastor, my guilt is infinite. You know it is. If you're lost and undone, your guilt is infinite. You stand before an infinitely holy God and your guilt is infinite. And we justly deserve his infinite displeasure. That means hell. You're right. You're absolutely right. But Owen the Puritan also rightly said, show me the sinner that can spread his iniquities to the dimensions of this grace. You say, but pastor, I deserve God's infinite displeasure. Well, this may not be good mathematics, but the infinity of the atonement is greater than the infinity of your sin. I can't explain it. All I know is that his, his finite sufferings on the cross were infinitely valuable so that the lost sinner that comes to him, no matter how great your sin has been, you are immediately pardoned of your sin, justified in his presence, and have the promise of sanctification in your life. And so I urge you, do not attempt to find salvation in any other. Only Jesus can do poor sinners good. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Amen.